welcome to The Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis security and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, the title of today's podcast is A Short Word on Compassion, and it follows on from a previous episode, which was called A Short Word on Trust. So I thought we could start this episode with you giving us a few of your thoughts on the subject of compassion. Yes, certainly. So the thing I would say about compassion, two two principal things, it's innate, so it exists, it's capacity. The capacity to be compassionate exists in everybody. But second thing I would say is it's not always accessible. So people may not even realise they have it. And the reason it's not accessible is because we all, myself included, get caught up in world of self. What Western society worries about is that what happens if you give that up? So if you listen to all the rhetoric in Western society and all about self-help and health and, and uh, lifestyle and everything else, it plays to the eye. It plays to the individual. Um, and it reinforces this notion of the eye, the individual, the self. And there's a real irony to this because when you give it up and you surrender the I and you surrender self, there is, in fact, something quite profound there. It's not like there's nothing there. There's a profundity to to the human mind. There's a profundity to the individual. And it is the profundity of the compassionate life. And so when the mind goes from self to other, so rather than being all about me, it becomes all about other people as well as myself. So... Uh, Buddhists have this wonderful saying that, you know, we should develop a, a, a mind of compassion for all sentient beings. And a sentient being is any being that seeks its happiness and seeks to avoid its suffering. So anything that has a, a desire to be happy and a desire to avoid suffering is sentient. And when we say all sentient beings, and we should be compassionate to all sentient beings, we are also a sentient being. So we need to be compassionate towards ourselves. And if we can be as compassionate to ourselves as we can to everybody else, so we equalise the compassion for ourselves and for other people, we live a profoundly good life, even in the most adverse of circumstance. We can make great meaning, great beneficial meaning out of adversity and out of the what would otherwise be seen as the difficulties of life. So... My career has shown me this for for 30 years or more, that that those who are able to shift from self to other were wiser people, generally speaking, much wiser, and and happier people, not necessarily blissfully happy in the midst of adversity. Uh, You still have to honour all of the emotions that rise up when bad things happen. So I'm not saying that we're all smiling when these things happen, but what I can say is that, that... a greater level of competence rises when we take the focus of our mind off ourselves. If you can shift from self to other, compassion rises over time, generosity rises over time, kindness rises over time, love rises over time, and from there, happiness arises over time. And people think you've got, we've got to go and save the world. 
And I would say that the world is what is in front of you. And if that happens to be your kids or your husband or your wife or your partner or your boss, doesn't matter, practice those things in your world. So practice being compassionate with your children, with your husband, with your, with your wife, with your partner, with your boss, with your friends, with your colleagues at work. Just practice being compassionate. You'll come home much happier <laughs> than if all you worried about was yourself. So, Mike, when you write about compassion on the blog, the subject of blame comes up a lot. Where do you think blame sits in the human psyche? Do you think it's part of a natural process of trying to understand when bad things happen, where the blame should sit? Look, I think we confuse blame with accountability, actually. I think blame is a projection. Blame projects. Blame says on some level, I cannot absorb all of my personal responsibility here. I just simply can't. So whether I am the cause of the circumstances that are arising in part or in full, uh, or I don't know what choices to make in relation to the arising circumstances, um, I therefore have to blame somebody because I can't take that on myself. I can't take that responsibility of ignorance on myself or I can't take on that responsibility of cause. So because because I've caused something, which I don't want to admit to, at least in part, or I've contributed to something, or I'm ignorant of something and I don't know what to do and harm's coming my way, somebody must be to blame. And I think it's unfortunate because I I think there is a question in society, particularly structured Western society, um, of accountability. And and I think, you know, we can hold people to account for for, um, harmful actions or mindless actions or or foolish actions or what have you. And I, I think that's important. So I'm not saying that everything that happens is fine. It's not. But is it useful to blame people? And the answer is, well, no, it's not. And and I'll tell you why. Because if I tap into my suffering, so if I look into my mind and I see every day how much I suffer, and I can do this as a Buddhist because I understand, you know, reasonably well the first noble truth of Buddhist thought, which is you should know sufferings. And so through mindfulness practice, coming to understand suffering, I realise that I suffer every day. By the way I see the world, by the minds that I bring to the interpretations of the world, I suffer. And I've come to realise that so does everybody else. Everybody else suffers the same delusions of mind that I do, point number one. Point number two, despite all of that, people are actually, in the vast majority of circumstances, particularly in crisis management and institutional life and all that comes with it, you know, privately, publicly, actually trying to do the best they could or the best they can. So they're, they're trying to apply effort. They're trying to do their jobs or they're trying to meet their accountabilities or they're trying to make a life for themselves and on some level through their actions benefit other people. And because they're navigating their suffering, that tends to affect the way they think, speak and act. And from there comes non-virtuous um, thoughts, words and actions and which cause harm to people. But nobody escapes that, Jordan. Nobody escapes that. So if we're going to start pointing fingers of blame, let's point the finger of blame at the delusions of the mind. Let's not point fingers of blame at people because people are navigating their suffering every day. You're listening to the Allegorical Life Podcast. You've written a lot about blame in the context of the emergency management landscape in Australia. What's been your experience in your career when blame becomes an overriding focus? When blame takes over, ignorance rises and, we've, and we miss the lessons. 
So the, the story I often tell from my career is the, the the stark contrast between the Canberra fires of 2003 and the Victorian fires of 2009. And what sat in the middle of all of that was the finger of blame. And uh, particularly following the Canberra fires in 2003, the finger of blame rose up in relation to person on person, uh, agency on agency, government on government, you know, community on community. So, so a lot of blame was attributed because people felt very aggrieved and very upset, very hurt. And I get that. I've seen that. I understand it. I've experienced it. That the emotions that rise up from adversity absolutely need to be honoured. There's no sense rationalising those things away. But when we start pointing fingers of blame, um, we miss the opportunity to learn something. So biggest lesson in the Canberra fires of 2003 in Sydney, Australia, in New South Wales, Australia, was the lack of public warnings and information, the absence of the ability to tell people what was happening and what they needed to do from, from experts, people who had competency to do so. Because so much blame was being perpetuated following that fire, the lesson was missed. And for a good five or six years, it was never really talked about. The fire was never really talked about because people were advised to go and get a lawyer and get ready to go to an inquiry and give evidence. Now, that's fine. That's how we operate in society. It's good advice on one level, but it stopped people talking and reflecting on another level because we're all caught up in blame. So we had to do with blame by administering blame through law. So we had to use the law and its processes to navigate that finger pointing. People said about the Canberra fires that it was one of the worst bushfires in Australia's history and was unlikely to ever happen again in a generation. And I heard that many times in the media and in, in course of uh, you know, uh, public conversations and other forums. Well, six years later, it rises up again, not in Canberra, of course, but in Victoria. And we go from losing four people and 488 homes to losing 173 people and over 2,000 homes and all the damage and suffering and grief that comes with it. And again, the biggest single lesson, not the only one, but one of the biggest single lessons was the absence of public warning and information. And so in six short years, we had two major crises of which something could have been learned and acted upon of which it wasn't. And when I looked at it, I realised that so much blame was going on after the fire in 2003, that there was little of any opportunity to genuinely learn and position for the next big event because people thought it wouldn't happen again. Why? Because people didn't want it to happen again. Not that we have choice in these things. So it was useless. It was harmful. It stopped us learning. It stopped, it stopped us developing. It stopped us reflecting and getting better because it, we got caught up in it. And, and I can't stress enough how harmful and useless blame is. Mark, you've also personally experienced post-traumatic stress disorder in your life, or PTSD. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. Look, um, that was a long time ago, of course. That was back in 1994, and it's now 2018, so it was 24 years ago. It took me probably 18, 19 years to admit it, uh, probably another two or three years or to admit it and talk about it, and then another two or three years to be able to talk about it without the emotional effects. So a long, long journey, probably at more than 20 years before I could have this conversation. So if you had to ask me, you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't have even breached the subject. So the 94 fires in Sydney for me was the catalyst or the, the pinnacle, I think, of a whole lot of life complexity that just added another layer that 
that kind of pushed me over. And back then, way back in 1994, it, was, it wasn't even, I don't think it was even a clinical diagnosis. I, oh, I think they had just started to discover it. But I remember at the end of those fires, um, which, which were certainly the biggest experience of my life at the time, and, and extraordinarily overwhelming emotionally and cognitively, we were offered one hour of counselling to to help us through the emotionality, and and uh, fifty five minutes of that hour, I remember it clearly. Fifty five minutes of that hour was helping the psychologist understand how fire services operated, and uh, and explaining the incident ground and so on and so forth. And then I got about five minutes of advice, uh, followed by please sign here so I can get my money. And that was the process. And then off off we went, and we were expected to be okay. And so for three months, I thought I was okay, and then. And summer ended and, and autumn turned up and winter started to dawn. Uh, that's it. I just, I just uh, fell into a deep depression. And, and, uh, and part of that was the, just the, the overwhelming and overawing nature of that crisis and some of the responsibilities, a portion which I cope well with, but also what I saw. And uh, w- without getting sort of too much into the war stories, it was just I just essentially um, no longer knew who I was. I've been a strategist all my life and a... One of those people that has, you know, is supposed to have institutional foresight and what have you, and trying to work out what's going to happen in the next three to five years, ten years, and you know, use a whole lot of data analytics and imagination and experience and everything else to do that. There were moments in my life where at ten in the morning I couldn't see past four o'clock in the afternoon. So look, but but I'd say this about PTSD. There's a lot more to say about it, of course, but it's like a rending, so it's a ripping open. So. I, and I've got a theory about this. I think that it has a purpose. Uh, it's going to sound quite esoteric, but some people have their lives to work out that they're a compassionate human being and you know they've got time to work that out and experiences to teach them. And other people seem to need to learn it much quicker. And so life has this, has this habit of coming along with certain people and saying, look, you're actually a very compassionate human being, but you don't know you are, so I'm going to rip you right open. I'm going to rip you right open and you're going to have to put yourself back together again. And and you will be a better person at the end of it, but you just don't know that yet. What I constantly get from people who have had PTSD and have got through it and, and the capacity to reflect on some level, with, you know, with varying degrees of emotional pain, but we'll say this, they'll say that, you know what, I'm actually a better person for the experience. They say two things. I'm a better person for the experience and I hope I never have to go through that again. (laughs) It's like a paradox. Mark, thanks for that. That's an amazing story and I think our listeners will really appreciate how open you've been in sharing that. I've got one last question for you today and that's do you think compassion is something that we're going to increasingly need to rely on to meet the future well? That has to be the most profound question you've ever asked me, Jordan, and the answer the answer is absolutely yes. I can't stress enough how desperate the world needs to understand its compassionate nature. There is so much harm playing out in the world um, through our media and through our narratives and through our politics and what have you. But having said that, I've got to say it is such a small part of what's really going on in the world, which is there's extraordinary amounts of compassion and kindness and and love and support, but but we still can't bring ourselves one to speak of them and two to to see them in a light that's worthy to report or worthy to commentate on. Now, part of when harm rises, I think we should talk about it because nobody wants it, and 
And on some most fundamental level, any decent person would say that those things are bad and so we should talk about them, otherwise they perpetuate. So anything that's not not properly spoken about or expressed or revealed will operate in the shadows and the darkness and that's not a good thing. So we, we do need to talk about the harm of the world and the harm in society, but I think we could balance it with all of what happens which is good in society and have a much, much... Um, greater level of confidence in our ability to be compassionate human beings. When, when we mention compassion in the Western society, we either walk away from it because we're not confident to talk about it or we think it's weakness. But compassion is this, in its most elementary form, and it's this. It says that I do not want you nor I to suffer. And, and, and so I don't want suffering for you and I don't want it for me. And a compassionate person is someone who can do one of three things, either stop it, stop harm from happening to start with, so make sure it doesn't happen, or if you can't do that, take it on on behalf of somebody else, so take their suffering on as to the best of your ability to the extent to which you can so that they don't have to suffer so much. Or if you can't do that, sit in the space with them as they suffer, and that's compassion. And And we all have that capacity. We all have it, and it's either innate or it's expressed, but everybody has it. And um, and somehow we absolutely have to get back to these conversations. I, I often say at work, you know, how, how much harm is acceptable in society? And they say, well, none. And I say, well, have a look at what's going on, the way people speak to each other, the, the things that people do to each other, you know, the, the thoughts that people have. It's all quite harmful, really. And yet we don't have a definition of harm. We don't, we don't understand suffering. We don't. We really don't. We walk away from the word because it, it sounds awful and it, it invokes, you know, things that we don't want to have to experience. But the reality is, Jordan, we are going through it every day. So the world needs to be. It needs to rediscover its compassion. And many, many people are doing good work in this space. And it's it's some of it skillful, some of it is unskillful. We owe it to ourselves and each other to be patient with this with this journey. Um, that we will do it imperfectly. We, we will inadvertently cause harm in trying to pursue compassionate means, but that's probably okay for now because at least we're giving it a red hot go. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.